This episode is brought to you by HP Instant Ink. No one is reading your mind, but HP Instant Ink knows when your printer is running low and sends new cartridges before you run out. So you never have to think about ink. For details, visit hp.com slash instant ink Spotify. Conditions apply. This episode is brought to you by PayPal. These days, choices are everywhere. Like, for instance, the milk in your coffee. Would you like it from a cow? A nut? A tree? Everyone wants options. And now your customers have a new option in the way they pay. With PayPal in person. Just generate your unique QR code in the PayPal app for them to scan. And start accepting PayPal in person today. Learn more at paypal.com slash US slash get QR code. Travis Shuttle from Piebald, from their hardcore roots in Boston to being part of the emo scene, you know, and coming out on the other side writing hooks upon hooks to being the one of the most requested guests for this podcast. Well, I have answered your requests. Um, so without further ado, Travis, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I guess I'm here. Apparently I'm here and somebody somebody somewhere wanted that. So cool. <laughs> um. We're going to start really early, so hopefully um, you can think back this far. Um, but, I, you know, you, you grew up in the Boston area, correct? Yes, a town called Andover, which was about 20 miles north of Boston. But I was actually born in Pennsylvania, but I did grow up in Andover and Massachusetts. How did you get into it? How did you start saying, you know, I want to go to shows, I want to, you know, start really experiencing this? What was the sort of, was there someone that... What? Yeah, I think there was somewhere and there was some place, too. There was a place called the Red Barn. It was in North Andover. And there was a woman named Marilyn who would, she was older, so I guess that's how she got the clearance. But she would have hardcore shows, punk shows at this place called the Red Barn. And she used to run a skateboard shop. So skateboarding, punk rock, and hardcore, and then Converge being from the same place. Like, I think Kurt sort of took us under his wing because Aaron was in a band with him. I was in a different band with him. You know, and then Steve and Adam from Caven both played music with him. We were all interconnected and very brotherly, you know, while not stepping on each other's toes. It was all just like, holy shit, look how good this guy is. I want to play with that dude. And, oh, my God, this is so cool. This guy wants me to play bass in his band. Yeah, I'm absolutely going to do that. And, you know, you're in high school. You don't have a care in the world. You know, school, I don't even remember anything I learned in there, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So, uh, so, so that venue was, I mean, what, I guess even going back further, was it, was there a record that someone lent you or was it a mixtape um, that someone lent you and was like, holy crap, what is all this stuff? Because for me, I had to find out about stuff through friends and they brought me to a show and then um, that was it. Yeah, I think that, I think this is a combination of things, too, because there was a radio station in Boston that was called WFNX, and it truly was, at that time, a, a alternative station. They would play The Clash. They would play Dinosaur Jr., which to this day is one of my favorite bands. And I, I, don't, I mean, I would have found out about them eventually because they were from Massachusetts. They were a, a home state band, but WFNX really uh, paved the way for the like alternative thing in my mind and enjoying that. And then, you know, a band like Converge and, and, you know, being there to see cave in and be buddies with those guys and all that. I think we, that all sort of as peers, I feel like we really found, uh, what's the word, like inspiration through that, you know, WFNX was awesome. That was the alternative, you know, they played the Pixies, they played the Cars, they played Bob Marley, I remember, and thinking how strange it was, but it wasn't played on any other station, you know, 
They played the Smiths. They played Clifford Dunin. They played the Screaming Trees. It was wonderful. It was awesome. And then they changed formats, and it's a whole other thing now, and radio just isn't the same anywhere in the world. But between that and then a place like the Red Barn, Boston being so close, going to high school with dudes a couple years older than you that are, like, the best musicians in the world now. And, <laughs> I mean, it's just it's amazing. Uh, we had a... We had a good place. And then, too, I mean, I'd love to mention, you know, more about Converge and, like, Cave-In and you guys being different sounding. Like, Converge was super aggressive. Cave-In early on was, but then they, you know, got spacey. You guys were, like, you know, rock, indie. You know, you were hardcore at the we beginning. We were really aggressive at first. I yeah, mean, first, it, was, yeah. it was definitely more aggressive. We were worse musicians and didn't quite know as much what we were doing, but that's the case with any band. That yeah. Is starting in high school and lasts more than five years, you know, it's like a, whatever coming of age or figuring out what you, what you're really trying to do and doing it better than you did before. But, uh, yeah, I mean, we all came out of the hardcore community and then I think our side influences were all different than that. You know, I'm sure to this day, Steve Brodsky is going to tell you that his influences then were guided by voices, Metallica and, uh, let's see what a uh, failure. Yeah, and I bet you can call him, and he would say that. And like <laughs> mine would have been Dinosaur Junior. But then these are these are all our sideline favorites to like this whole hardcore thing that's happening that we're witnessing in front of our eyes and being a part of. Yeah, you know. And then I, I guess from that, I've I've tried to mention too that you could have, you know, an indie band play with a hardcore band play along with you know, a metal band on the same show and it was okay and normal. Did you feel that as well when you were sort of, or, yes, did, or were things were segregated? Yeah. No, I think absolutely. Uh, very much that was the case, you know, and while some of these bands were sort of straight edge kind of like, and I mean this in the best way, sort of like more the meathead hardcore, like, you know, uh, judge-ish, you know, meat and potatoes, like, this is burly hardcore or whether it was like more on the metal end with like with a, with a cave in, or if it was more, uh, like melodious, like a walleye or, you know, or, 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 these... or like stoner, like tree. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think, uh, Boston was great for that. There was a lot of times when weird combinations of bands would play together and, it would be a really cool show, you know? Yeah. Um, is there a, uh, was there a record that you had gotten while you were growing up or even, you know, bef and said you heard it and were like, I want to play guitar or I want to be in a band. Was there like a record that you got that meant that much to you that influenced you that way? Let me, let me think about that. Cause it's probably <laughs> got me to play guitar. You know, I'm not... I don't know, because when I was growing up, too, that what really got me interested in music, strangely enough, was was like Top 40 radio, because that's what I was hearing as a kid, and I thought like it was really cool, and it was, you know, at that time it was like hair metal and rock set and and Finding Cannibals, and which I actually still love, Guilty Pleasure, and things <laughs> like, like uh, I don't know, in that just 80s produced 80s pop stuff and that I think is initially what excited me about music because my mom had me taking piano lessons and while piano wasn't cool I could learn whatever I I wanted to musically you know I could just say hey I want to learn this song and my my teacher Mrs. Schmidt would the next week or the week after that have the music for me and we'd like play through it and I'd practice it for a couple weeks and then when I learned it we'd move on to something else so uh strangely enough I really think what got me into music is just was popular music in the, you know, mid eighties. Mm -hmm. And then wanting to learn. It. I mean, that's great. Uh, who, who forced you into the, into the piano lessons or was it something that you wanted to do on your own? My mom definitely pushed for it. I don't, I wouldn't say she forced me, but she wanted me to do something else. I wasn't really sports oriented, you know, and she'd always taken piano and we had one in the house. And I think it was, it was maybe a push of hers, but I don't ever feel like she forced it on me. She just, um, I think, tried to move me into getting a musical hobby. Mm -hmm. That's the. So I blame her for all this. Thank you, mom. <laughs>
I would love to kind of go into sort of, um, you know, piebald and um, what sort of transpired to when you guys all got together. Uh, let's see. Uh, well, Aaron and I met um, through mutual friends and skateboarding. And he and I were sort of clashing personalities because I was pretty mellow and reserved and he was pretty wild and uh i don't know just like loud personality wise you know you know when aaron's in the room or i guess i always do but now i've known him for so long it's like weird he just had his bachelor party so that's a whole nother story (laughs) oh boy he's getting married this coming weekend okay oh no way that's awesome yeah yep it is awesome it's so so cool but yeah, so we met through skateboarding, and we were, I don't know, middle teenagers, So, and I'm oh, a year and a half older than he is, so I guess I was like 15, and he was probably 13. Um, and then he played guitar, I played bass at that time, and we had we were playing with a drummer named Todd Collins, and he's from art, and uh, we were actually called Dork Knob, which, as you can tell, is a fantastic name, and that's why we stuck with that for the rest of time. I, I mean, so. is I think that's a great name. I think you made a mistake. Well, <laughs> changing. I, I'm happy that I went the route I did because okay. I think I'd be embarrassed now. But <laughs> I was really loving Primus, and they were all goofy, and it was. I don't My know, name is Mud. Yeah. Sailing the Seas of Cheese. Yeah. Oh, that album. That's a good one. That is a great record. It's so weird, but it's good. Um, <clears throat> okay, so we eventually outgrew Todd Collins, Aaron and I, and we were really excited, and we were getting more into, uh, like, hardcore stuff. And before that, it was like, okay, Fugazi and alternative music. But then it, meeting Kurt and watching him play and going to shows, like, with him or you know, going to see Converge or whatever, you're like, okay, this is, I want to follow this path. This is awesome. I'm right here. Like, it's so tangible. You're, you're like, I don't know. It was very cool. At any rate, we didn't really steal John Sullivan from 7% Solution, which was Kurt's side project at the time. We kind of just like started playing with him an awful lot as Piebald, and then we got Andy because we knew his sister, Leah. And she went to our high school, and Andy went to uh, Catholic school. So he didn't go to our high school, but they they still grew up in Andover. And so we knew Leah. She was a year older than I was in school. And she said she had a brother that played bass in a band called Pretzel Keg. Now, now that... We had about that bass player. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> Just on the name alone. <laughs> so... We met up with Andy, started playing with him and with John Sullivan, and it, you know, that's that's how it sort of all started. We'd play in John's basement. He had a drum set down there, and we'd just write songs and and I don't know, make bad music for a while and get a little better and work it out and figure out how to play with each other and I don't know. And then you know that was piebald for a long time and then we moved to boston together with kurt as well and he had a studio in the basement and then you know john graduated college and became a little more serious and we had drummer replacements but you know the the that's that's the basic beginnings i guess yeah and i think too from the you know moving to boston and and one thing that i wanted to bring up too is such a big you know straight edge scene then and yep. FSU crew and all those things. What was being at, at being an outsider where I was, being in the little safe place of Vermont? Um, what was the um, what was the feeling about that? Was it something that did you guys feel that, or was it something you just didn't notice and you didn't didn't try to deal with it or care about it? No, well, um, I think it was a little bit of both, like. You knew it was there, and you'd hear sideline stories like, oh, this friend of ours got beat up by the FSU. Okay, well, that's kind of a bummer. And then you'd hear about this guy who, you know, quit being Edge, and all his friends stopped hanging out with him. And you're like, okay, well, that's not cool. But, you know, we weren't really – we opted out of that part of it a long time before. It seemed like that was such a big deal in Boston, I I think. You know, I could be wrong, but we sort of – we, 
I will never be bummed about my history or the the hardcore, you know, music or the straight edge community or, you know, being a vegetarian. That never, I'm not going to say that none of that ever happened in my life, but I think we did reach a point where we're like, okay, well, this is awesome. And I'm so happy to have been a part of this growing up and have it form my whole way of thinking about music and what is, you know, what, how to, to, I don't know, just like live and exist and be a human in the world. But I'm also willing to find out more and explore more about the world of music and everything, you know, like I don't want to cut myself off from other, uh, things that may influence how I make music in a very positive way, you know? I mean, it was very, it was very constricting. It was like, you need to be this way and this is how it is. Yeah. And, and go out, of, I'll go outside of town for a minute. There's a lot of people right. doing different things. So yeah, Boston was pretty adamant about, uh, clicks and, and, you know, friendships and, and, uh, almost like gang style things, you know, but it, uh, at the same time, it was very open because I always tell people it was such a place where, you know, you'd have a, a label like Big Wheel that has bands like Cancer Conspiracy, Damn Personals, uh, Piebald, and, you know, In My Eyes and all these bands. And we're all playing shows together, even if it doesn't make a whole lot of sense sometimes, you know? So it's weird. It had a real dichotomy in that sense of those two things where there's a very welcoming sense, but then there's also, hey, we're part of this clique and uh, you're part of a different clique, so we can't really go to the same show. Wow. That's weird. <laughs> it is weird now that I'm really thinking about it. Or, you know, because friendships have been lost because of people not being straight anymore. And that's, that just seems crazy. Was that what it was based around? It was pretty much if you were straight edge or not. I mean, obviously those other beefs. Style of music you made too, because you know, but that went hand in hand. I felt like the straight edge bands in Boston, like In My Eyes or Ten Yard Fight or uh, DYS, those bands they were very particular in style. You know, and they would absolutely play shows with other types of bands, but you know, and. And then FSU throws a whole other thing into the mix. I don't know. It was an interesting place. And I never really felt ostracized or alienated by anyone personally, but I absolutely heard stories, you know, or knew people that, sure, this gang beat them up, you know. And, okay, well, that's a bummer, but at least we're still here, and life will go on. Yeah. Um. Another band that I was just when you mentioned Big Wheel, I was remembering um, a band that I love, Milltown. Yes, oh, that, was, that first EP was great. Yeah, I love that band. if anyone out really... there has not find it, um, I'm sure it's out there somewhere. But Milltown was great. Oh. <laughs> yep. um, that's interesting because I've heard people from you know if it's the Midwest or from the West Coast and kind of hearing about things and how. It seemed like there was so much music going on. There was so much um, things happening. If it was that those straight edge bands, but then also the hardcore bands, and then Boston is such an indie indie world too, with all the colleges and the radio stations. Yeah, it's if it's a, ERS, it's you know, all those places. Yeah, you know, it, was a, it really was, and in the in the in the best way possible. But I also know nothing else at that time. You know, I at every place in the early, mid, and late '90s had a real spark of excitement because. We were, music was riding the wave of grunge, which was seemingly a real music form again after hair metal, which everybody caught on to pretty quick. We were like, okay, I get it. This gimmick, this game is over. Like, (laughs) this is not going to last forever. You know, as a style of music, but I don't know. Hardcore and alternative music certainly came to a mashup in Boston. You know? Yeah. And I thought too, since you sort of went through it and out the other side was the communication that was sort of different from, you know, if it was the mid nineties to today where, you know, in about five minutes, um, I know everything about your band. I know all the whole discography. Um, and there's, there's, it's easy to, f- 
find out in previous, you know, had to buy the CD to read the, you know, the liner notes or talk to you or wait till you came to town or read the review in the magazine that took a month um, or the cell phone. Were there, have you sort of ever thought about that or kind of looked back and, and Uh, felt? I have a feeling every person you talk to on this thing has thought about that a lot. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you even know? I mean, Jim Jim Atkins was telling a story where he was like, "Tom, we would drive to a town, find a payphone, and call the kid." <laughs> yeah, to find get directions to the place to the yeah. show. Absolutely. Yeah, you'd know maybe an address, but that really wouldn't help you at that time. You'd say, "Well, how do I get there?" And you'd say, "Okay, get off exit whatever, and then call call my house, and then I'll know to meet you at the venue." You know, it, it, absolutely. I I remember having to. Usually it would be Sundays. I don't know why this happens, but when you can't predict a stop or whatever, it would be hard to call your parents or your girlfriend or whatever, but my mom was always a Sunday's phone call if I could make it happen. And that was absolutely payphone, and I would hopefully have a couple quarters and be able to call her and be like, hey, I am doing fine, the tour's great, uh, whatever, I ate some beans out of a can, love you, Mom, I gotta go. And then, so it's like, Cool update, weekly update, and then you know, uh, yeah, absolutely remember that. Absolutely. Do you think? I mean, uh, the, what I what I feel is the reason I'm you know so in love with that that time period because I feel like that is the last time. That was the last time that it was you know maybe there was a beeper, maybe you know you could uh, uh, mess with the. Um, uh, uh, pay phones with a dialer that the braid guys had or something, you know, being able to, you know, make uh, calls. But it was a very, I don't know if your thoughts on it, just sort of like it, it was that last time where it really was a tight community and you really had to be face to face. It wasn't, you know, a MySpace message, Friendster message, uh, fucking Makeout Club, all that shit. Right. No. Um, are there true. are there are there parts about it that you wish were still still prevalent or okay. some do you, do you yeah. I mean you got like I mean a website and Facebook and Twitter and everyone's got to do a hundred different things yeah I hate that I just want to make music <laughs> I just want to but I try to keep up but I suck at it and it's it, what really irks me and I, I know this isn't true all the time but that's a to create fame for a band now it's more about how what you do online and that that was never the case before you know to get fans you just went out there and toured and then you went and recorded and maybe you sucked at first but you kept doing it and you got better and then you kept doing that you kept playing shows you didn't go online and create you know set up a photo shoot with your band and record one song and start a page you were a band of friends and you wrote a song in a basement and then you wrote another one and then you wrote a third one and realized the first one completely sucked and the third one's not that much better. But then you kept doing it and then you'd go play a show when you had five of those songs, you know, and, and you played with other bands and you realized, okay, we're all working something out together and yeah, they're not that good either, but they're better than us and that's awesome. Like, I want to get to that. Yeah, it's almost like you guys worked out all your problems, you know, while you were in that basement. <laughs> Or most, or most of them. Of them. Most I mean, they, of them. they come up when you when you go on tour a lot and you're just in the van a lot. You know the the, the relationship strains. I mean, I gotta say, I, I feel really blessed that Highball called it when we did because I think I would hate to be a band that ended where everybody hated each other because that would just make me so sad. And we never got to that point. Not that we would, but you know, we were everybody had bigger fish to fry in their life when we called it off, you know, it was just time. Just like, look, we're adults, you know, you have a child, you're, you know, it's like there's just things where I think we would hold it against each other if we, like, force somebody to go out on a crappy tour or, you you know, and, and I'm really feel good that we left it in a place where, I think we all can say this, that we all still are like, oh, man, I love that guy. I love that guy, and I love that other guy, and it's, it was awesome. And you, know? you can look so back and that, smile. Yeah, absolutely, 100%. You know, yeah. have we made a couple mistakes? Sure. But do I look back on it with, like, a, a really good vibe? 
Absolutely. The guys had fun. I think there were so many bands that were so serious and, you know, didn't say stuff. And you just, the videos, we had fun. The songs were fun. It, it, it brought like a different energy, which, you know, in the emo world, obviously in the indie world, it's like very serious. And what were the sort of the ins- inspiration behind that or how you guys sort of took yourself um, and, you know, obviously when you can laugh at yourself, you know, people sort of can uh, relate. So what was that um, in- inspiration behind that? I am actually not really sure. I think it just developed uh, over time. I think we got maybe we got better at it. I think we all wanted to have fun. That we were like, look, we're we're making the the best rock music we can. Uh let's also have fun. Let's also have fun. Let's have fun with the people we're playing for. Let's hope that they have fun. Let's try to make them have fun. You know, like let's I don't want I don't want to be known as the guy that's like the bummer dog all the time. Who wants to be known as that guy? I don't want to be known as that guy. I want to be like the guy, people are like, that guy had a blast. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, I listened to the one of the live records you guys had, and I, you know, it was hard to hear your vocals. <laughs> the, <laughs> the crowd was screaming so loud. And it's like, you know, first notes of Grace Kelly. You know, bang, they're yeah. on it. Um, uh, speaking of which, like the names of songs and the albums, that's the other thing that I loved. Like it wasn't, you know... This song is called Slower, you know? It was like, right. you know, very different, you know, songs. And uh, again, what was was that you? Was that someone else in the band that you guys wanted to kind of play on words or just have some more fun with this instead of being... I guess uh, it was mostly me, but I think it was everybody adding things here and there, you know? I think once, once the weird vision of like who cares what the song title is or like let's make it somewhat random or like why don't we just make people laugh with a song title or like that's or something is a personal joke that we turn into a song title you know it's like where's the who cares really what the connection is it's a song title or not every time but sometimes you Mm -hmm. know um and then was there was there um uh, stole a lot from books too you know the what we stole a lot from books yeah you know um, so no, that's fine. Stealing's fine. Um, the, uh, some of the songs that I think obviously a lot of people love Grace Kelly, you know, American hearts, um, long nights. Um, were those as you, each time, obviously you played them most nights. Like, was it something that you guys love to do? Was it something that after a while, was it like a, Oh God, we have to play American hearts again. Or was it like, this is, you guys still had kind of fun doing it. I know it's kind of a weird question, but I just think sometimes bands have these songs that people are so stoked on, and sometimes the bands are like, eh, but were you guys still stoked on them? Yeah, um, let's see, I think that's a, there are some songs where, and I guess Grace Kelly's on this list, but it doesn't have to be, but if we were playing a certain length of set, or under a certain length of set, I felt like that was a six minute waste of time at that juncture you know for for me it felt like there was cooler things i could do with that six minutes during a half an hour set then play <laughs> grace kelly yeah yep more exciting for me you know and as we found out a moment ago i want to have fun i want to have fun i want so it's like that's not a bad song and i don't mind playing it but i think it's not I remember actually at the in the last couple of tours, if we were opening and only playing half an hour, I would never, you know. And even if every once in a while someone in the audience would yell it out, I thought shoot it away. But I think it's less about it being a bad song to me as that it was just time consuming and it wasn't what I wanted to play if I only had a half an hour to play. Yeah. I've I mean that makes sense. Like there's that whatever one song on the first record, whatever it is, like it's of course there's gonna be a guy that yells it, but you would fucking hope that he likes the last record and he hasn't heard any of those songs live. <laughs> so you'd mind right. be or, wanting... you know, we didn't it's not like we didn't we wouldn't play anything off of that album either. We would yeah. still play a song or two in a half hour from doing some blinds, but maybe it wasn't one of the opening crap. I'm sorry if that ever chatted anybody or whatever, but you know, it's like 
hey, sometimes you're not the band that gets to play for an hour. You're just not. And sometimes you don't want to play a single song or that someone wants you to play. And hopefully it's just people have enough times or they, you know, like not one particular air song. Also, the band has a couple of records that might not make it happen for you, you know? Yeah. I mean, as, and, as bands have more records, I mean, you guys had a ton of records toward the end. Um, there's, it's an, it's impossible. Yeah, we, we would have to, if we were to play every song we ever wrote, A, that that practice marathon would be terrible, and B, that concert would be a long, that'd be like a six-hour thing if we played them straight, you know? <laughs> We're going to start a Kickstarter. Let's start a Kickstarter right now. A six-hour podcast. show. every song they've ever written. <laughs> Travis may die at the end, but we'll, we'll, at, least, we'll at least get the record out of him. Yeah, I'm going to need an intermission on that one. <laughs> For breakfast or something. Breakfast. I like that. Um, were there some favorite songs um, that... Um, you sort of like that are sort of those hidden gems or those ones that sort of didn't get the recognition or even when you were touring didn't really get the love? Um, you know, I, I don't really think so because the songs that I really love to play, we we played often enough that I felt fulfilled. And, you know, the songs where you realize you're getting zero reaction at all, you kind of just, they sort of fall to the wayside or every once in a while you when you're when you're playing like your last shows or whatever, you try and fit as many songs in as possible. And I also got bored of sets. I was I don't know if the the other guys would say this or if I'm kind of the only controlling dude in that way that they know, but I would have to usually did little either segments of three or two songs and I would mix up those little sections every night. Kind of, because I couldn't do the same thing overnight and night again. It just got boring to me. I needed to at least play them in a different order and throw a couple different songs in there so it wouldn't, you know, it can't... It keeps you on your toes. Yeah, I don't want to go on a month-long tour and play the same eight songs every night. That sounds stupid. (laughs) That sounds stupid. So, you know, I couldn't do that. I was never interested in that. I wanted to be switching it up and I found what worked at least for us was like I made a different set every night but it was based off some similar things and every once in a while we get a sound check and then we get to go for adding a different tune or you know I had to switch things up I can't imagine not doing that yeah and the thing, too, I, was going to, I want to talk about touring, and this reminded me, you know, the mid-2000s, you guys were right there. You were you had records, you were playing. Um, what were your thoughts as sort of that, the scene that you kind of were in, if it was the hardcore, the emo, indie, kind of, it, it broke. There was, you know, if it was Bleed American, and then, you know, a lot of the bands sort of were on MTV, and what was your, you know, I, I kind of consider those days pretty dark um but what was some of you know your guys's thoughts you guys's did you just hear that that was horrible what was <laughs> the band's sort of thoughts as you're going through those years of it was it it was were not affecting you or was it wow look at yeah look at, was, i mean it felt like hair metal for me if it was a hair metal yeah. in the 2000s yeah i mean that was when i think that was sort of the beginning of the end of piebald because that was where we were definitely on more of a decline. Not, I mean, yes, in popularity, but and then at that point, nobody was buying records either. So beyond just less people coming out to see us, you know, or them not pre, like uh, enjoying the last two records as much as they like Friends or whatever. Uh, I think <clears throat> I think it was just a time where there was. Yeah, a lot of weird bands sort of making making really uh, popular records. Pop punk. It was pop punk. Weren't very good. It was pop punk, and it got thrown into the you know that label, and 
it was just seemed like, yeah, I mean, you guys had to have felt like, okay, everyone wants us to dress like this, look like this, and we're not. We're a band. And it just, it went from not, I mean, yes, people liked the music, but it went more, it was like what they looked like. It was what the photo on the cover of the record or the poster was. And it it seemed to really, really also, go away from that. It's also a time where, like you were saying, information was starting to spread very quickly instead of you having to go to the record store and pick up a record or go see the band live. Like you said, so that's why a particular photo could could stir up that sort of whatever, right? Because millions of people are seeing it instead of thousands. And those thousands that originally saw it were putting in the effort to see it. This is like you're just getting blasted with a photo, so you don't even have a choice. <laughs> what were you guys thinking during that? Was it, what oh, the fuck? fuck? Was it, was it, oh, fuck? I mean, was it like Jane Lane saying, oh, fuck, Nirvana just came out, I'm, I'm without a job? <laughs> yeah, well, we were like, oh, shit, how do we do this? I, I think our best solution at the time was uh, the vegetable oil thing, because that made us have no, no major gas costs. Uh, but we also realized that the record industry was collapsing, and I don't think we had any idea what to do about that. And just less people were coming to see us. That's just a plain old fact. And that's not bad or good. It's just what it is. There were, you know, we were opening for say anything. We were opening for the format. We were opening. These are awesome. I had a blast on every one of these tours. But you know, people were not necessarily there to see us usually at that point. Yeah. And I guess from that, have you had any have you had any feelings toward the emo revival word that's been thrown around last year? Um, uh, who's doing that? Who's on that barbecue? So it's a lot of these. I got tipped off to it around 2010. Um, someone sent me a link, and he said, "Tom, there's this band that sounds like." Mineral. I don't even remember what it was, but he was like, check out this song. They're from Russia, and they're referencing Mineral. And I go, you're out of your mind. They're not. And because at that point, you know, no one was doing that. It was all about, you know, the hooks and pop, and people, right. you know, forgot about Elliot. And, and then I started hearing more about these bands that these kids starting these bands were looking, oh, they liked the Midwest scene. They liked, you know, um, they were doing more research and finding out about, all the bands that were on all these labels and, and there's record labels now that are sort of spawned from it. And now it's getting press, uh, you know, if it's pitchfork or stereo gum or whatever site, um, it's picking up about these bands. And, um, I don't know if you were aware of it all, but it just, it was interesting that now, you know, people are pissed that they're being called emo revival when that was, people were pissed about being called emo back then too. So it's like a... Well, these guys thought it out, so they should be called Emo Revival. They weren't even the first time around for a name that no one chose. They yeah. They were, like, trying to revive it, those dorks. Of course they should be called that. <laughs> I like that. I like that. It is... It's it is... for thinking they should not be called that, if that's really what they're doing. Yeah, no, it was. It was It was looking back and, you know, being influenced by a bunch of different things. But, yeah, it was. it was mostly they were, you know, referencing a lot of those bands from the late 90s. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty interesting. <laughs> I don't know if you had any, any, uh, any, uh, oh, I'm glad I it. didn't know about that. It's okay that you told me, but I'm glad I didn't know about that. So right now. <laughs> hey, Travis, I got, don't go on the internet. I promise. Don't go on the internet. <laughs> well, I try to as little as possible. I won't lie. I'm, I don't really don't care about it. I, and I try to care about it less than I very smart you're a very smart person the other thing too that about that time the late 90s too was how there were a lot of bands that i liked that had girls in them and um there was an npr article can you believe there was an npr article about this but saying that it was sort of a you know boys club um and i was pretty surprised because i remember a ton of bands um you yep. know that had women what was your sort of dealings when you had shows or if it was girls and bands girls a show what was sort of your oh, well, we, thoughts about we, it we toured with jay june and yep. araby is the sweetest cool that was amazing and but but again she like i don't know if she's a tomboy per se but she knew how to get along with a bunch of dudes on the road you know like and i know i know that's maybe not for every lady in the world but Airbnb was amazing, and I 
love playing shows with her, and I didn't feel any sort of weirdness or whatever. One of my favorite songwriters when I was in high school is Juliana Hatfield. Uh, let's see, there's uh, just, I don't, sure, uh, my musical taste is male-dominated, but I don't think... I didn't see it as a boys never, club. I didn't ever think like like Beta Minus Mechanic would come through, and it Rainer Maria. Yeah, it so wouldn't. Many, there was. Yeah, I, I don't. Maybe I don't know. Maybe uh, we're not seeing the whole picture, but I didn't really see it that way either. And on top of that, I felt like the cool thing about hardcore was part of its ethos was preaching like real equality in that sense you know that it was like look we're not putting up with any of the bullshit anymore we don't want you know don't there's going to be none of this sexist macho shit even though the music was very much macho uh but like there's going to be none of you know let's try and be good humans not fog up our brains with drugs not eat all this bullshit that you know people are factory farming and like i don't I never felt like that was truly the case. Sure, there were more dudes there than ladies, probably almost every time, but it didn't feel completely like a, like a boys' club, and it didn't feel like it was exclusive in that sense either. No, I agree. Yeah, I was very surprised by this article. I, I they must have, I don't know, I don't know what their their context was, but it was, it was so shocking to see that. Um, I, you mentioned the, you know, the vans and with the, with the, um, the, um, the, um, vegetable oil, um, that is, I, I love that. And it was really great. It actually, I think it it saved us some years on the road because we just were able to not spend as much money, you know? And when did you sort of, when did the light bulb come off and be like, fuck, we could do this. <laughs> well, our friend, our friend Mike had been getting into it. He did a lot of research on Rudolf Diesel and just was curious in his own right. So he had an old truck that I, I got, had a really good name. So I got to think of it. It was like Bone Crusher, so stupid like that. <laughs> but off. Um, and he just started tinkering with it and, and he built a tank. Um, actually, at first he had a trash can in it that he put the vegetable oil in through a sock filter and he put in a solenoid switch in the front where you could draw from one, either the the stock tank or his trash can at the beginning. But then we later made tanks that were more real, obviously. Uh, But yeah, his truck was the first thing that I'd ever seen run on vegetable oil, even though I knew the the diesel engine was originally intended to run on peanut oil. But, uh, yeah, so basically we got together with Mike and we had a 12-passenger red red van that we called Big Red, and that was a, the Pie Ball Tour vehicle for a long time after Melvin. And uh, we put a tank in the back of that, and then we rode with the trailer for, I don't know, years and, and would just go to places and put vegetable oil through the stock filters and then, you know, flip the switch in the front when the engine heated up and drew from the veggie tank. It was great. It was awesome. That is so. When what year did you start doing that? Two thousand four, I think maybe five. It was definitely late in the game. Late in the game for us because you know it was uh, definitely a time where uh, you know, we weren't touring as much, but you know they would they would happen and but it was oh man, I tell you that was crazy. One time at the end of a tour. Uh, we were done in North Carolina, and Aaron and I were coming back to Los Angeles. We only put $8 of diesel in the tank, and we drove the whole way from North Carolina to Los Angeles. It was amazing. Wow. Eight bucks. Eight bucks. That's unreal. Yeah, we drove across the country for eight bucks. It was mind-blowing. <laughs> were you guys just, like, the whole time being like, oh, shit, oh, shit? <laughs> yeah, we were cracking up. I mean, we were just laughing and Psyched. It was crazy. Counting money. <laughs> yeah, I wish, but at least we weren't. We weren't not counting money. Exactly. <laughs> oh, that is, oh man, that's great. It was great, and I, you know, it's weird. I think people have sort of dropped the the gas problem notions in a way. No one is really talking about it, and I know gas has evened out a bit and gone down a little, but. 
uh, I'm wondering what the next spike is that it's going to be talked about again, the vegetable oil thing. You know, like that's going to get brought up again because the logic of it is just more logical. Yeah, and there's this, it, 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 it's so interesting about the you know mainstream media where something if it's if it's if it's a war or if it's um conflict and then it's talked about but then that messes with OPEC because that you know not only you know um supply and demand that affects it too along with what's happening in the world it just it gets to the conscious of mind so then they talk about it and like oh let's do hydrogen cell let's do electric and it's and then it just goes back to where you're still filling your tank up with gas. Yep. Yeah. It's, well, I, I mean, we know that why that is. I think it's the same reason that L.A. was supposed to have a cable car system and then a car company, which I believe was Ford, came along and said, we're going to buy this and stop it from happening. And L.A. is now completely commuter city. And I wonder what type of place it would have turned into had that you know, cable car system happened. I had seen some photos of what it was supposed to look like, and yeah, there are still parts it looks fucking like amazing. Oh, you're yeah. right. You're right. There's still you can still see remnants, and you realize that's what it's from. You know, and it's pretty wild because the city certain is certainly is lack. I know it's huge, but it's certainly lacking in the public transportation department. Oh yeah, I mean, there's I, I live there at a time. There's no that you were not. There's just doesn't make sense. <laughs> yeah. Doesn't make All sense. right. Well, I'll do it, but this could be better. Yeah. Too bad. The problem is that it's never really going to be great because when it should have been better, it got fucked up. So it's just just gone, really. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that brings up. I mean, I'd love to sort of know what you're doing now and your sort of future. And um, you know, I know that you're still doing music stuff. So you live in Los Angeles, right? In Los Angeles, um, I'm basically a bartender who plays as much music as possible, and uh, yeah, I mean, I have a band called TS The Past Haunts, put out an album, uh, I guess it was now two years ago, on No Sleep, and since then we've been recording EPs and releasing them digitally, and one came out in October, and we're going to release one again soon, working on some covers, we've been playing shows, but haven't really got out of LA very much. Um, but yeah, touring's just a lot harder, you know. It's very you need to be making guarantees or at least having it worth your while by playing opening shows for someone because people won't just come see TS in the past box, you know. It's, it's there's no real audience. Our friends come sometimes, and sometimes you know we usually can because you know no one to my own horn, but I think we're pretty good. So when people see us, they're happy about seeing us, but it's not like. LA is a hard place to cultivate a fan base, you know. No, definitely because it's like if you don't live in that neighborhood, no one's going to really trek from Santa Monica to Silver Lake to come no. check you out. No, um, you'd have to play there. Um, oh, that's great. So, what's um, I think? I mean, that brings up to what what keeps you going? I I love this because you're still doing it. You're still making music. What 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 in it? What 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 about it keeps you going? Where you're just like, oh fuck it, I don't want to do it anymore. Is it because you can release these things digitally and kind of get it out there, um, or what's sort of? A, I think I have a couple, a couple things. Like, I mean, I think a while ago, and this was even, you know, at the at the end of Piebald, and and even at the beginning of it, I I was never doing it for the 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 money. It was because I liked playing music. So I've had a few times in my life where I really have to teach myself that lesson, or go over that with myself and not feel, you know, some moments of disappointment when either, you know, piebald is over or no one is caring about some, you know, people care less about what I'm doing now or, you know, things like that. But once you get rid of those things and sometimes you still have to do that over again, I think, like, I'm still making music. Actually, in fact, I'm making music now more for me, I think, than I ever have, because I know it's not about what anybody else is thinking about the music. I think it's entirely what I'm thinking about the music. And I love my bandmates. I have a dude who, I, as a roommate, who we record with, and I think we've been able to get great stuff. Not even, you know, we 
we've been able to benefit from having his skills and modern technology because we can literally go to the practice space and say, hey, I have a song idea. Let's go, let's track it, and it'll sound great. And it's, you know, and I guess this is pretty the point where I'm like, look, if I never make another sent off music again, it's fine. That would be cool, but that would be the added bonus. I'm just going to keep making it because I want to be, when I die, I want to have made a million songs and not cared about the million dollars, you know? I love that. I, I, it, it just, it's funny that the when I talked to the Bray guys, it was really that similar thing. Like we just love it, and that's the other part that I loved about that time period. And it's like you guys were so invested and connected to it, and it kind of stayed with you. It wasn't this thing that you were chasing. It wasn't a holy shit, we're gonna do this. It came out of something honest and I know that there's bands today that still do that but at that time there wasn't these it wasn't like you were searching online and being like what do I you know oh I'm listening to this band from over here it's like you saw the bands that came through town or your friends hooked you up with or some you know maybe someone from California there was a distro and you learned about bands Mm -hmm. outside of it but it's that it's that feeling of that this is you 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 were connected to it Um, and I just I'm just I just love that you're still doing it it makes me so happy I just think they're. I, I'm, excuse me for that burp. I'm drinking a beer. Um, <laughs> you should. And there's another one. Uh, I just think at this point in my life, I'm 36 years old. Not that that's here nor there, but I'm no longer 20, and that's a very different position to be in. And I'm realizing there's nothing that I do better than play music. I'm the best at it. I can just go out and say that at this point. That is the thing I am the best at. It is my favorite thing to do, and it is the thing I'm the best at. Now, why would I stop doing that? You know, and I just have to figure out new ways to do it in an age where it's not the same thing that it was, you mm-hmm. know? Yeah. But that's okay. You, you know, it's like, that's fine. It's just a different it's a different animal. It's a different time. It's a different thing. But I'm still playing music. So, good. I love yeah? it. I love it. So, the last thing, um, is there anything you'd want to, you know, say to piebald fans out there? Uh, thank you for all your years of, of loving us. We really appreciated it. It's, it's incredible. I still look back, and I can't believe that anybody cares about anything I or we have made. And I, I realize that it's, you know, it, people do care about it, you know? Not everybody people and so those some people it matters a lot and that's really flattering you know so i can't i can't not appreciate that so thank you to those people and to you <laughs> jeff thank you man that was great you're very welcome tom thank you got something to say you might